The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about do-it-yourself biology and the community labs that are changing the biotech landscape from the grassroots up. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I have two guests with me today. The first is Will Canine, a political organizer turned technologist living in Brooklyn. He's co-founder of Opentrons, a personal lab robotics company, an active member of Genspace, and co-chair of iGEM's new hardware track. Good to have you here, Will. I'm excited to be here. And we are also joined by Tito Jankowski, co-founder of BioCurious, the first hackerspace for biology, and co-founder of Pearl Biotech, empowering scientists with new research tools and practices. Thanks for being here, Tito. Great to be here. So who would like to start out uh, by explaining what exactly DIY biohacking is? So a lot of people ask, what is DIY bio? What is garage biotech? What is a community biotech lab? Uh, and for me, what it comes down to is people are, they're naturally curious about biotechnology. Uh, it's really changing very quickly. Um, and what that means is a lot of people are interested in biotech who don't work in a university lab uh, or work at a, a big company that does biotech. Um, so, for example, one of, the, uh, one of the guys at BioCurious, he was an electrical engineer most of his life. Uh, he, after a pretty good career in Silicon Valley, he moved back home to India to try to start a farm there. Uh, he found out that farming is actually really difficult, and uh, it's it's really one of the reasons is it's it's so tough is is due to droughts. Um, and so he's back in Silicon Valley. He's a member of BioCurious, and he's learning about how to help crops grow where there's not much water. Uh, and again, his his background is electrical engineering. And so the value of this is that we've got we've got new people thinking about biotechnology. Uh, we've got new ideas in this in this growing industry. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we need. We need more people involved uh, and experienced with with engineering and science uh, around biotechnology. To me, the most interesting thing about biohacking is that, as Tito said, non-experts are able to get their hands on biotech and really start experimenting with it. So, you know, whether it's an artist who's provoking people's imagination about what DNA could do in the future, or, you know, a political activist like me who's trying to empower more people to innovate with biotech. Um, I think that biohacking spaces are providing a crucial link to, you know, democratizing biotech in general. Well, that's interesting because you do make it sound like a movement. And I do keep hearing it referred to as a movement. So a movement usually has an ethos, uh, guiding ideals or beliefs. What what would be the, the ethos of this movement? Yeah, I think that the sort of hacker ethos um, where it's just everybody according to their ability and nobody according to their sort of prestige um, is exactly the ethos that we're applying now to biotechnology. Yeah, I think one thing that sets apart uh, what I see at BioCurious is definitely the, the ethical side is that th there's a crazy work ethic. Um, and so it's, it's different than what I've experienced elsewhere. It's all about uh, doing what you love and, and sharing that, that passion with, with other people. Um, one guy at, at BioCurious, he's, he worked at Apple for a long time. Now he's retired. Uh, and he showed up at BioCurious one day. He's just sort of interested in what's going on. And two years later, he is he's teaching other people. 
not only has he learned how to work with DNA and make stuff that glows in the dark, but he is, he's teaching others. Uh, and I think that that's a really wonderful, uh, ethical side to this, to this community is, I mean, I've worked at big companies, I've worked at startups and, you know, a lot of times people aren't really thrilled to get to work every day. You know, it's, we've, we've sort of probably all been there. And uh, I think that what, what's really wonderful about, uh, what I've seen at BioCurious and other hacker spaces around the world is that everybody's there because they're curious. Everybody wants to discover this new passion. Uh, and, and they really love sharing it with other people too. Well, and why can't you get that out of an established lab? You know, it's just a very different kind of experience. Um, in an established lab, you're typically working under, uh, investigator and you're not able to just sort of pursue your curiosity as as Tito's pointing out um, but you know it's not just the sort of newbies that are coming to places like Genspace it's also people who've had a career in biotechnology and have had a burning idea that they've just wanted to play out for their entire lives but have not had the space to do it so really just providing autonomy and a place to be creative and innovative um, is really what it's all about well, and how does that benefit society, sirs? Sure. Yeah, I think my perspective as a political activist is that the people who control biotechnology right now, the people who have the means to innovate in the space are not doing particularly great things for the world. I mean, we have a lot of people innovating in the space of like erections for old people or, you know, intensifying poisonous practices in agriculture. Um, but not not a ton of people making sort of the playful um, applications in a biotech or the beautiful applications of biotech. And I think that when you increase the franchise of who can innovate with this amazing technology, biology, um, you're really we're going to see some things that we just couldn't imagine before. So uh, what what exactly happens in a community biotech lab? I think that depends a lot on which lab and which community, um, just like any kind of space. Um, I know that, you know, Genspace and BioCurious are two of the sort of most well-known ones, but they function very differently. Um, Genspace, for example, functions mostly around classes. We have a synthetic biology class and a biotech crash course um, that we teach weekly to lay people, you know, non-scientists or scientists if they want to, you know, get their hands wet in the lab again. Um, and that's how I first got introduced to Genspace three years ago was through Ellen Jorgensen teaching the synthetic biology class. Um, and then People can propose a project to become a member, pay the $100 a month um, for lab space. And if the project is deemed safe and like it's not going to take over the whole lab, then it'll be approved and people can come work on it when they want. Yeah, to extend that, I think one of the things that uh, I've seen at, at BioCurious that's really wonderful are what we call community projects. People come in, they're curious about what's happening, and they're not really sure how to get involved. And that's why we created these community projects. Um, and they've got some pretty lofty goals. For instance, the uh, 3D Bioprinter project is one of our community projects. And again, that means on Thursday nights, you can come to BioCurious and you can learn about this uh, 3D printer for biology and you can even start working on it. Um, and I've just to you know echo what, what Will said, um, I've been to a lot of spaces around the world in uh, Paris and Cork and, and Genspace in uh, Brooklyn um, and Counterculture Labs in Oakland. Uh, there's, a, there's a lab that's starting up in Copenhagen. 
Um, and I think what Will said is really that's that's the core idea that's that's all around the world, but it's it's different in each location. Now, what does that depend on? Is it sort of the like the regional culture or the 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 founder? Is that what sort of guides the the ethos of each individual space? Those two things exactly. The things that affect the creation of a of a hackerspace, I think, are the the founders um, and the the locale. Um, if you go visit La Paillasse in Paris, um, the founder is a you know he's a PhD student uh, working in synthetic biology. Um, his girlfriend is a wonderful artist, uh, and so that's the sort of the founder side. Then you have the the French side that where they, they ask a lot of questions and they discuss a lot of things. And it's really wonderful to go over there because they're talking about, you know, what are all these technologies that are, uh, that are popping up around the world? What do they mean? Uh, should we be pursuing them? Uh, and, and so that really describes the, the culture of La Paz is both the, the founder and the location. And because they're in Europe, there are a lot of different laws about what they can and can't do with DNA and genetically modified organisms. So, you know, that's another factor that drastically affects what biohacker spaces do and do not do. What does one of these places look like? Like when you walk in, just paint me a picture. Sure. Well, GenSpace is in a big collaborative artist's loft. You know, around the space are huge interactive installations and flashing LEDs. Um, but GenSpace itself is a glass-enclosed wet lab that you would recognize as, you know, anybody who's had wet lab experience. It's got all your PCRs and centrifuges, and the flame is going to be burning when people are doing wet work. Um, but beyond that, it's like, you know, once you get out of the immediate lab space, then it's just a hacker space. Well, that's what I was wondering, because I've been to hacker spaces, and, and I definitely hear the comparison all the time that the DIY bio spaces are very much like the, the computer-based hacker spaces. Do you guys think that's a fair comparison? I think when we first started out, that was the most useful analogy, is, is the question, have you ever been to a hacker space? We're creating something like that for biotech. Four years in, going on five years, I think that uh, I think biohacker spaces are their own uh, are their own place, um, and I think it's really wonderful. Yeah, I think that's true. I think a lot of it has to do with the types of projects that you can do um, in biology versus in you know programming, etc. You know, you can spend an afternoon hacking together an app with a bunch of friends in a hacker space and and call it done, Um, but it's going to take you a month of time in a biohacker space to, you know, transform an organism to a place that you're happy and, and call it done. So I think that just, you know, a lot of the logistics of um, what's different about biology affects the space and how people work in it a lot. So how are, how are these spaces funded? There's a variety of models that can help to sustain a community biotech lab. We'll mention that at GenSpace, they use classes to keep the place going. Um, at BioCurious, we have a split between memberships, so people coming in and paying a, a monthly membership, and we do a lot of corporate workshops. So we get, so for instance, uh, some engineers from Google come over and we get uh, some of the top scientists at BioCurious to walk them through kind of an introduction to biotechnology. Uh, we have a two-hour class and we have a six-hour class, uh, and so that's how we fund these community biotech labs. And if anybody's interested in a workshop at BioCurious, you can visit our website, biocurious.org. 
Can we talk about some of the specific DIY bio projects that you guys are familiar with? Uh, Maybe ones that came out of GenSpace or BioCurious? Sure. Uh, I already talked about the 3D Bioprinter project. Again, that's a community project at BioCurious, which means we invite people to just come in and and check it out and work on it. Um, One of the other well-known projects is Real Vegan Cheese. They were just featured in an article in Wired. Real Vegan Cheese is this community project that uh, started at BioCurious and Counterculture Labs. Um, The idea is to basically create cow's milk without cows. What they're working on is to engineer yeast to make milk. Yeast are usually used to make beer, and instead they're going to be engineering them to make cheese and, and milk. What's exciting about that project is, like a lot of things at BioCurious, it just starts from a group of people getting together and saying, what's something that we can work on? Um, and that's that's really the at the heart of a lot of our community projects, is p- people that come together with a wide range of skills and say, hey, what do we all have in common that we could, that we could work on? Um, another example of that type of passion, I think, is the, the Glowing Plant Project. Right. Uh, the, the Glowing Plant Project is uh, they're trying to make house plants that, that glow in the dark. Um, and they, uh, they raised almost half a million dollars on, uh, on Kickstarter. And they've been working uh, as, a, as a corporation for a couple years now on that project. Um, but its beginnings were, were very modest. It was, again, a, this idea of a community project. It was actually called the Bioluminescence Group, which, uh, if you don't know what bioluminescence is, it's hard to pronounce, uh, it basically means it's cool that stuff glows in the dark. <laughs> that was so and, succinct. <laughs> and these, commun- these people would just, everybody would just get together and uh, talk about, hey, it's cool that stuff glows in the dark. How does it work? What's the DNA behind uh, jellyfish glowing in the dark? What's the DNA behind fireflies? Um, and out of that, that interest and that excitement, um, you get uh, people learning about basic skills of biotechnology, and you get a couple entrepreneurs who, who decide to start up a, a company. And so those are the types of projects that are happening at BioCurious. Uh, some of them are, are just for curiosity and for entertainment, and others are for entrepreneurship. So what's going on at GenSpace? Yeah, a lot of similar kinds of projects. Um one exciting one right now, we actually just got published in a peer-reviewed journal for, um, is sampling organisms, microorganisms out of the Gowanus Canal. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with New York and Brooklyn-specific geography, the Gowanus is a now landlocked canal um, that's been declared a Superfund site. There's all kinds of poisons and radiation and all that stuff that's gone in there. Um, so not a lot of fish growing in there, but a lot of microorganisms. And GenSpace, along with um, some labs from you know, big institutions, academic institutions in the city have been wearing biohazard suits, going around in canoes and um, sequencing microorganisms that are able to survive in this super toxic area. And they've actually found some really interesting genetic traits that are common in a lot of these organisms um, and, and have gone on to, you know, actually publish in a peer reviewed paper and, and, you know, push the scientific, the science forward in that way. Another great example would be um, the open lab blueprint, which is not a science experiment, but a project to make it 
easier for other people to start their own biohacking space. It's a website, openlab-blueprint.org, um, where you can go and see all the types of equipment, all the regulation concerns, some best practices for managing and growing a community, and a lot of other really useful information for starting up your own biohacker space. Um, and then finally, my own company, OpenTrons, um, was launched out of GenSpace basically when I was learning how to do pipetting and wondered, why can't I just download this protocol and run it like I would on my MakerBot or 3D printer? Um, and, you know, that was two years ago. And today we're a venture-backed startup with over 50 customers um, and selling more robots every day. This is Science for the People, and we're talking about DIY biohacking with Tito Jankowski, co-founder of BioCurious, and Will Canine, member of GenSpace. Okay, so you both have mentioned that, that some projects have been sold commercially afterwards. So how, how does that work? Well, it's one of the great things about a biohacker space as opposed to, say, an academic lab is that there's nobody trying to take your IP. So you can come into the space and, you know, create a proof of concept and then go on to do whatever you'd like. Uh, you know, in the case of glowing plants or open trons, we did Kickstarters um, and pre-sold units in order to get our company started. Um, but there's a project at GenSpace right now um, from a, a man who spent his career in the pharmaceutical industry and has an idea that he's really excited about um, and is working towards, you know, a first proof of concept for an actual potential thera therapeutic drug. Well, and so if, if it's sort of an open source project and anyone can come in and work on it, um, I don't know another way to say this, but how do people get paid? Well, I think with, with Open Johns, we're launching a company from the space. So we could never have really got this started without the kind of community support that GenSpace gives. You, there, there are biotech incubators in San Francisco and in New York that are more like a thousand or two thousand dollars for a bench. At GenSpace, it's a hundred dollars a month for a bench. So, you know, nobody's actually getting paid at GenSpace, but they, they can have the freedom to create a new thing that could pay them going forward. One of the most exciting things about what's happening at BioCurious and other uh, community biotech labs is that people are excited about figuring out what is open source biotechnology. We have a good idea of what open source software is, and we have a good idea about what open, open source hardware is. For examples like uh, Red Hat Linux in software, MakerBot in hardware, um, but it's not clear what the implication is for biotechnology. And I think it's really exciting. If you want to check out what Real Vegan Cheese is doing, uh, they're at realveganchees.org, and you can check out all their uh, information that they publish under free culture licenses. Okay, so now we're, we're going to get to the part that, of course, everybody wants to talk about when we start talking about DIY bio. Safety standards and regulations. How regulated is this field at this point? Is that the part that everybody wants to talk about? <laughs> well, it would it would seem so uh, with all the scary media stories I've heard about. The science journals, on the other hand, are excited as hell. But it's mainstream media that's, mm -hmm. you know, proclaiming doom as they are wont to do. 
Well, okay. So I'll, I'll answer this question from Genspace's perspective. Um, we actually do a lot more in terms of safety than the regulations even require us to do. We think it is important that when you have individ- untrained individuals coming in and working with powerful stuff that there are a lot of precautions taken. We've been um, working closely with the FBI um, and other national safety regulation bodies to ensure best practices from the very beginning of, of gen space. Um, and I, we definitely think that biosafety is a super important thing and see biohacker spaces as being on the forefront of educating the public, not only in how to use biotech, but how to use biotech safely. Now, I think that there is also a whole other side to this, which is, how safely is biotech being used today legally? I think that there are lots of corporations and other institutions that do things with biotech that are not safe. In fact, that are being proven to harm people and other living things. And yet because of legal structures are allowed to get away with it. So I think that when people worry about biohacker spaces creating some type of doomsday scenario, they should look around first and see how biotech is being used today and wonder if that can't be improved by enfranchising new people to innovate with biotech. Well, and from what I understand, it's uh, the community itself are have, have been fairly preemptive in creating their own sort of internal regulations and codes of conduct. Absolutely. the uh, On our safety committee, are included MIT and Stanford biosafety experts. Um, and any, anything that Ellen Jorgensen and Oliver Medjevic, our two PhD co-founders, aren't sure about, they will put up to that committee. Um, there was an interesting sort of E. coli uh, project that involved an alternative for positive selection that was not antibiotic resistance. And we were thinking about playing with that um, for our iGEM project last year, actually, but it was just deemed not safe enough to be done at Genspace or maybe even anywhere. So these are the kinds of questions that we always tackle before starting lab work um, and, and we think are really important. But, you know, there are a lot of places where safety is not the first question. The first question is how much money can this make? So I think that realizing what people's motives are is as important as looking at what the regulatory structure is. Are the risks different in a commercial or a government lab than they are in a DIY space? As an entrepreneur, I think one of the risks that we'll allude to is that this idea of transparency and being open to the public, uh, it won't always work out uh, how maybe the entrepreneur would like. Uh, I think there's a lot of technologies that, like like Will was alluding to, that, that get developed in big, giant biotech companies. BioCurious is public. We have we have open hours pretty much every day, uh, and that's part of our culture. And so, uh, for example, bl- uh, Glowing Plant uh, came out of BioCurious, and so they started this public discussion around genetically modified uh, plants. That's really exciting, but it's also that's that's pretty risky as an entrepreneur. Um, a larger company, I think, would probably keep a project like that. Uh, wrapped up and not really talk to anybody about it. Uh, and so I think that the value of this transparency, even though it's risky, is that when, when a project takes on the risk of, of opening up to public discussion, I think that that is really healthy and really necessary for the future of uh, bi- the whole industry of biotech. And maybe this is a question for Will, because your background is politics. Are there people that are pushing politically for more regulation? 
I mean, I think that the people who are pushing right now for more regulation are actually pushing to just prevent any sort of biotech innovation, period. They'd like us to, you know, put Pandora back in the box and pretend like nobody ever learned how to do genetic engineering. But that's just not going to happen. Um, one, one thing that I always like to say is like computers were first developed to drop bombs more effectively and kill people better. And now there are these happy things that we use to talk to our moms and make gifts that only happened because the ability to program and use computers was put into more and more people's hands. So I think that when people look at the scary things that biotech has wrought so far in history, um, they need to not react with concern that we do any biotech innovation in the future. We're going to continue to do biotech innovation. The question ought to be how and what should the motives be and what kinds of things should we be building? And those all boil down to who is doing the building. Do non-DIY bioscientists want more regulation or stricter controls? I think it all depends on who you talk to. And I don't think that you'll find any scientists agreeing with the, you know, friends of the earth that all genetic modification needs to be stopped. Um, I also don't think that you'll find any serious scientist or, you know, conscientious DIY biologists saying that there should not be any regulation either. Obviously, biology is powerful, powerful stuff. And we as a society need to have rules for how we deal with it. Well, and you mentioned earlier that uh, different countries have different regulations around that. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, in the EU, it is illegal to, um, without a license, put a piece of DNA into a microorganism to carry out a transformation. Um, so a lot of the spaces, places like La Paz, for example, will do a lot of DNA assembly and then they'll go to an academic lab and sort of shh, go to a place with a license and, and then transform it. Um, in the United States, we don't have that kind of rule. If you have a biosafety level one status, as I, you know, Genspace has and BioCurious has, then you can do these things, um, as long as you observe basic safety precautions. You know, recently we saw the, um, the scientist in China who used CRISPR-Cas9, a, a new genetic engineering technology, to modify human embryos, um, which was a thing that scientists in the United States and the EU decided was morally objectionable and they weren't going to do. And so I think that that story to me calls a lot of the most important questions when, with regards to regulation um, to the forefront, which is it's not just about what is and is not right to do. It's also about who is doing it. And if you're, making it so that it's so hard for an individual to use a new technology that they have to either act illegally or move to a different place, um, then that is a real problem. And you're setting your society on a track to be behind when others do develop this type of technology. One thing I wanted to hop in and say is uh, there's a lot of really exciting new technologies and terms that are popping up. In biotech, uh, that's one reason that people are so curious about it. For instance, we'll mention CRISPR-Cas9. So what what is that? Uh, I'm working on putting together a little 
book called The 100 Most Important Things You Need to Know About Biotech. And basically, it's just terms like that and a little explanation of it. Uh, and if you'd like a copy of it, you can email me. My email is tito at biocurious.org, T-I-T-O at biocurious.org. You're listening to Science for the People. This week, we're learning about open source genetics and biohacking spaces with Will Kanine of GenSpace and Tito Jankowski of BioCurious. Their nonprofit volunteer-run community labs are helping to drive the biotech movement. And we'll be back with more right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. We're in the midst of a mini-panel about DIY biohacking with Will Canine, co-founder of OpenTrons, a personal lab robotics company and an active member of GenSpace. And we're also here with Tito Jankowski, co-founder of BioCurious and co-founder of Pearl Biotech. So before the break, we were we were talking about uh, stricter controls and regulations uh, around DIY biohacking. And one of the reasons for that, in my opinion, and I alluded to it earlier, was uh, it, it's basically the way that the media covers DIY bio. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I think that the media always likes to focus on the sensational fear factors. Um, as we know, there's nothing new about that. Um, but why it's particularly, I think, damaging in this case is that the general public is not well-educated at all on you know, DNA and genetic engineering, et cetera. Um, and, you know, as many of us have done some reading know, it's not possible to, in a DIY bio lab, create a terrible strain of avian flu that kills the world. That's just not possible. But when you say, you know, could somebody create a terrible strain of avian flu in a DIY bio lab, then everybody's going to go crazy and freak out about it. Um, and that's basically what's been happening from my perspective. From my perspective, I love the the involvement of the, the media in biotechnology. And it, to me, it, it really shows how curious people are about uh, about this developing field. Um, and I know it's different all around the world. I know, for instance, in the UK, people are really into synthetic biology. The government is giving tons of uh, tons of grants out, and everybody's really uh, excited about the technology. Uh, so I do know that different countries see things differently. Um, but you know, from BioCurious' standpoint and from my perspective, we've always been on the uh, the to the benefit of media. Um, you know, Real Vegan Cheese was just just covered in Wired. Uh, that's that's a wonderful example of uh, real vegan cheese going open source with their design, going to crowdfunding for their uh, to get funding for the project, uh, and then working with Wired to explain what they're working on and share that story. Uh, I think it's wonderful. I'd love to see more of that. Um, if there's more journalists uh, listening to this show, I'd love you know if people want to email me and uh, happy to set up interviews and things like that. Well, and I was going to say, I, I think Wired, it, although they are fairly mainstream, they still fall on sort of the, the science-y side of publications. Uh, do you still see there being a problem within the mainstream publications? Are, are, are they still scared? 
I'm looking at a, an old copy of uh, USA Today from a year ago, and it says, two years ago, and it says, DIY biopunks want science in the hands of people. And that's USA Today. I mean, that's as, that's as mainstream as you get. And I think that there's a lot of interest. And there's, sure, there's, there's those, uh, those articles that sort of are based on, on fear, but I, I'm really a fan of the, art, the articles that, that are interested in this kind of, this curiosity. Um, and this idea of enabling people to learn more about biotechnology. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Tito. And I think that a lot of the excitement um, is generated by the media. And, and we see new people fr- come to GenSpace because they've seen us in Newsweek or they've seen us on PBS or whatever. But I, I do think that there is a danger about sort of this other side of the story gaining too much credence and and really preventing the biohacker movement from growing to the place that it could be, which, you know, could be a real source of innovations to solve 21st century problems. And that the pushback is not just coming from the media. I heard Craig Venter at SynBio Beta say that the DIY bio movement represented the single biggest threat to biotech's future. Really? Um, yeah, because he's afraid of people, you know, creating a killer virus. Um, And so I just, I think that whether, you know, it's a reporter who's looking for a good headline or Craig Venter who has so much money wrapped up in his IP that open source type models are really terrifying to him. um, This boogeyman story um, needs to be put to rest. Well, let's consider this the place where you can debunk some myths. What would you like to tell people about it that they don't know? You know, I'm I'm not a biosafety expert, and I would definitely direct people to people who are biosafety experts. But from what I have understood about it, I, you know, nobody's going to create something in a DIY bio lab that is going to, say, outcompete a native species. Usually in DIY bio labs, we spend all of our time trying to keep our little organisms alive so that the wild organisms around it won't won't gobble it up and, and turn it into their lunch. We just want to have our little glowing bacteria. Um, we're not we're not capable of making anything threatening, <laughs> not to mention we don't want to. I read an article, and I believe it was from 2013, but there was a there was one sentence that summed it up nicely. Uh, critics of DIY bio seem to overestimate the current abilities of the movement and underestimate the ethics of its participants. Boom. That's it right there. Are you allowed to work with pathogens? I think a lot of it has to do with what um, biosafety level you're operating at. Mm-hmm. GenSpace is at biosafety level one, which means... We don't, and we don't do anything with mammals. So I think we maybe even technically could do mice with biosafety level one, but we don't just because we don't want to have a bunch of cages smelling bad around. So practical it's practical concerns. Yeah, I, I just, I, I think that a lot of the fears that people had would go to rest if they just sort of took a glance around our shabby little space and like shook hands with one of our members. Yeah, just to hop on, one of the 100 most important things you must know about biotech <laughs> is uh, what biosafety level means. Um, so biosafety level one, which is what uh, Will said when he was talking about GenSpace, uh, BioCures is also a biosafety level one uh, lab, and most of the other uh, community biotech labs in the United States are biosafety level one. What that means is it's on the same order of 
work as done in a high school biotech lab. So if you've ever done lab work in a classroom, that is classified as a biosafety level one lab. Biosafety level two goes up to uh, being able to do things like test human blood, things like that. And then when you start getting into three and four, that's where there's only a few of them uh, in the country. And, you know, those are the much more sensational sounding things. Um, but, you know, every community biotech lab is either a biosafety level one lab or biosafety level two lab, um, which means there's, you know, there's no human pathogens. And I think that really the funniest thing about those biosafety levels is it's like as much about the safety of the organism that you're working on as it is about like people's safety. Because when you have hoods because of a biosafety level two requirement, it's mostly because you need to make sure that your sample doesn't get contaminated. So let's say, how would uh, either GenSpace or uh, BioCurious respond if if they did see a potential biohazard or, or just something that looked sketchy? What would you guys do? So BioCurious, we have, uh, like at GenSpace, a safety group that reviews experiments um, to see if they're safe. Um, but, you know, a lot of just sort of normal stuff comes up. Uh, that can be a little bit dangerous or a lot dangerous. And we have to figure out um, what to do. So one example is uh, recently we had uh, a scientist who wanted to work on uh, an experiment and they needed compressed gas. So compressed gas is like, uh, if you've ever been scuba diving, you wear a big tank of compressed gas on your back. Uh, But it can be dangerous because if it tips over or gets knocked over, it releases all the gas. Uh, and it can, you know, move around and, and hit somebody. Uh, so we didn't have anything in BioCurious that was like compressed gas. So the safety group went through and uh, learned about what are the, what are the standards um, for, for having compressed gas, whether you're in a research lab or at a, a factory um, or, you know, on a scuba boat. And so there's a lot of existing safety rules for this. And so we can, we can consult those uh safety guidelines and we can also talk with experts. We're right next to, um, you know, so many big biotech companies that there's always uh, an expert in, in whatever field we have a question about. Yeah. And I think just to piggyback on that, one of the great things about the collaborative environments at places like GenSpace and BioCurious is that there's always somebody around to look and be like, Oh, that seems weird. What are you doing, man? And, you know, then hear the answer. And if that seems weird to be like, uh, seems like this person's doing something weird. And, you know, it's just a very organic process whereby people figure out if something's going wrong. Um, and if there were something going wrong, then moves would be taken to shut that down, you know, bleach it or whatever. But I, I think that a lot of the vetting happens at the front end when we're, you know, checking out members to see if we think that they're, you know, good, nice people and vetting their projects to make sure they're safe. Okay, so where does this movement go from here? What would you guys like to see? I really hope that a whole new type of biotechnology is going to start coming out of the DIY bio movement. Um, I think that things like consumer biotech where, you know, maybe it's a fashion item or, uh, you know, even just an aesthetic type of thing. Um, I hope that more sort of quote unquote frivolous and, and fun type projects start coming out of the DIY bio movement. Um, but I also 
hope that a lot of the projects that just don't have space at a big institutional lab, whether it's because they're just not interesting enough science from sort of the PI's perspective, or they're not an interesting enough business model from an investor's perspective. I hope that all those projects that have never happened because of those reasons can start to happen because of interested and engaged individuals in DIY biospaces. Um, I mean, I could go on forever about the types of things that I hope people will make to all the orphan diseases out there that biotech companies have decided just aren't profitable enough. I think that maybe there are some solutions out there that individual biohackers could come up with. Um, I think that open source seeds and, and GMOs and agritech kind of things could be an amazing thing that comes out of DIY bio. Um, I think that synthetic biology projects to create perfumes or whatever <laughs> that people want um, could all come out of DIY bio. Um, so I really think that it's going to come to the point where we're not just talking about the biohacker movement anymore. Um, you know, like we stopped talking about the homebrew computer club it pretty much as soon as professional programmers started getting paid real salaries. And I think that we'll see that happening and we'll, we'll stop talking about the biohacker movement as it just becomes a pervasive thing that people are doing, innovating with biotech. Yeah, I really agree. I think this is, this is really where the fun starts. One major next step is to start to create more labs. And so if anybody out there is interested in starting their own lab, I wrote an article that's called uh, How to Start Your Own Biotech Lab for $2,000. You know, that's still a lot of money for an individual person, but um, you can do it. You can get together with with other curious people around you uh, and start to look at creating your own community biotech lab. Uh, beyond that, I think it's it's just this wonderful model of let's think about creativity and curiosity and entrepreneurship. With my work at BioCurious, I've been able to see uh, what all these new people are doing in biotechnology. Uh, and a guy named Cameron Clark and some other people in San Diego just opened up the first lab within a public library. I think that's really wonderful. And I think that really goes along this idea of how can we help people get more curious about biotechnology? What does it look like when community biotech labs start to collaborate with other local groups? So what does it look like when, uh, when BioCurious and the San Francisco Botanical Garden get together and they start thinking about maybe a new type of fertilizer or what happens when uh, people at GenSpace get together with the Brooklyn Public Library and start to uh, think about the biotechnology of preserving old books or something like that. I think there's a lot in the, this idea of uh, just going out in the community and, and learning about what, what people are interested in. I love everything you guys are doing for reference. Just thank you. Across the board. And if anyone uh, isn't quite at the point where they want to start up their own DIY bio group, uh, there is a list of uh, ongoing groups at diybio.org slash local. And thanks very much to both of you for being here. That was great. Thanks for having us. So much fun. Thank you. You'll find links to Will Canine, Tito Jankowski, and their nonprofit biohacking spaces on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. In just a minute, we'll talk to artist and educator Heather Dewey-Hagborg about her art projects exploring our relationships with genetics and privacy. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 
Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined now by Heather Dewey-Hagborg, a transdisciplinary artist and educator who's interested in art as research and critical inquiry. Heather has shown work internationally at events and venues such as TEDx Vienna and South by Southwest, and her work has been widely discussed in the media, from the New York Times to Wired. Good to have you here, Heather. Thank you. So you are probably best known for your Stranger Visions project. Maybe just give us an overview of that. Sure, yeah. So in Stranger Visions, I collected forensic-type samples that people left in public spaces, things like hair and cigarette butts and chewing gum. I extracted DNA from those samples, and then I analyzed that DNA to create visual portraits of what those people might look like based on their genetic information. I have so many questions. Okay, so (laughs) first of all, how did you get started in biohacking? Well, I was coming from a background in uh, working with electronic art. So actually, I had a background in computer science and art from my undergrad. And then through graduate school, I kept sort of working in this area of machine learning and getting really interested in artificial life and the ways in which we were attempting to kind of capture lifelike processes with the computer, with algorithms and programming. And I also became very interested in surveillance in the wake of the Patriot Act, (laughs) which is so much in the news again right now. Uh, But that was sort of what got me interested in thinking about electronic surveillance issues, you know, way back then. And those two things were sort of, you know, jumping around in my head. And then one day I found myself staring at a hair and I just couldn't stop thinking about the information in the hair and what I could learn about someone if I tried to tap into that information. Well, so you took a a three-week course at Genspace, the community biotech lab in New York? Correct. What was that training like? What did you learn to do? You know, I went into it with this very specific idea in mind. So basically, I had already written a project proposal for Stranger Visions. I was working as an artist in residence at iBeam, which is an art and technology center in New York. And so I wanted to make this project. I wanted to figure out how much can I know about someone from a hair how much of a portrait could I create of someone I've never met based just on their genetic information? And so I went to Genspace really with this purpose in mind of researching this question and talking to the scientists there and getting this kind of hands-on practice element to it and trying to answer that question very specifically. So for me, I mean, it was a very directed process and it was incredibly useful. I mean, it was very time-consuming. I kind of had no idea how long biology took coming from computer science where you can do thousands of experiments in a couple hours. You know, in the lab, everything takes much, much longer. So that was certainly a surprise. So now you learned how to extract DNA and then you sent the samples to 23andMe, which is a DNA analysis service? Not quite. So I tried a lot of different things, actually. There were many uh, techniques that I uh, tried out. Um, But most of what I did for Stranger Visions was extract the DNA myself using a forensics kit and and then run polymerase chain reactions on that DNA uh, to target specific areas that 
related to single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, these uh, specific spots on the genome that are correlated with traits. And so I, then I would take the result of that PCR and send that for sequencing, get the data files back, and interpret those using computer software that I had written. Okay, how long did that take? To get it working, I probably had about six months of failure in the lab of just, you know, trying one thing, trying another thing. Mainly it was trying different methods of DNA extraction, trying to find something that worked, trying to find what kind of samples were going to work the best, this kind of thing. So lots of trial and error. And then I started to have some success getting mitochondrial DNA first. So that was really exciting. And then I started getting some success getting genomic DNA in general. And so it was this very lengthy process of experimentation. So then you did send the samples off to 23andMe. No, they've, no, you can't, actually. I mean, this is, I mean, so at the time in 2012, when I started working on this project, I tried all kinds of ways, actually, of trying to hack 23andMe kits to send them extracted DNA, but none of them worked. <laughs> and so 23, I never was able to get a full 23andMe analysis. Now, if I was to revisit the project today, which I've thought about, there are services now that offer the same kind of service 23andMe does for a small price, a similar price to 23andMe, and they do take extracted DNA. But in 2012, that wasn't the case. So all I could do was literally the kinds of PCRs that I could do by myself in the lab. you know. And so I was limited by my time and my money. Okay, so what kind of information did you find then? I looked at things like ancestry, first of all, gender, eye color, complexion, freckling, eye color, a tendency to be overweight, and some details of facial shape like nose size. Okay, so then you fed this into a 3D printer? Yeah, so basically what I did was I took uh, my experience with 3D facial recognition. So I'd been working with these algorithms for facial recognition, and I'd been trying to do kind of creative disruptions of them for a while. And so I knew how that technology worked. And so I took these 3D facial recognition models, and I kind of reappropriated them to generate faces with specific traits, rather than to recognize faces with specific traits traits. And so then I was able to take these kind of this, what's called a morphable model and change these faces around based on the input data and then output those as 3D models, which I then printed in full color, life size and hung up in the gallery. I really encourage people to uh, check the link to this show afterwards and look at some of the models that you made. So how accurate are these representations then? These are kind of rough resemblances. So it's kind of a question of how much do you look like that list of traits that I just said, right? How much do you look like an average Northern European female with blue eyes and a few freckles in my case? Um, so and to the extent that you look like that, this, the portrait will have a resemblance to you. And then in addition to this kind of generic image, um, I use my artistic license to create these individual portraits that were customized to the sample. So basically my process was for each uh, sample, I would generate five different versions of that face. And then I would choose the version of the face that I found the most compelling and interesting to look at. So it's, is the fact that it's not exactly an accurate representation, is that a limitation of the DNA analysis or the 3D portrait technology? That is a limitation of the portrait technology. Um, and there's a lot of debate over the direction this technology is going, how accurate it can be in the future versus how accurate it is now. One thing I do want to stress is that it is not a completely accurate technology by any stretch of the imagination, but it is offered right now today as a service to police. 
So this is something that we really need to be having a conversation about. And I think a lot of people don't realize that this is not science fiction. This is the present. Well, and that was your intent, yeah. I assume, with this project, is to start that public conversation about the use of DNA profiling and privacy and genetic surveillance and, and all of this. Exactly, yeah. So for me, it's kind of this twofold activity where I'm looking at the genetic surveillance aspect of it, right? Calling attention to the fact that we are leaving stuff all over the place without thinking about it. But then also hopefully opening up this technology and inspiring people to think about it more deeply. Well, I find that interesting that that was your intent, but there there was some concern about uh, the ethics of this project in the first place, correct? I'm sh- There's all kinds of concerns and re- reactions, I think. I mean, it's kind of in, in retrospect, been one of the most interesting parts of working on it is just how many different kinds of reactions there are. So, for example, I mean, even just these, the kind of subjective reactions, like when I stand next to my self-portrait that I generated, half of the people that look at it think it looks nothing like me, and the other half think it looks just like me. <laughs> and now, let's be clear. There is no law uh, about uh, this kind of DNA collection. The, the fact that you picked up cigarette butts, uh, in my understanding, off the street. Okay, so this is a little bit of a complicated area. So there are various legislations, um, state to state, that do vary, that do connect to uh, abandoned DNA um, in terms of what the police can do with it, in terms of what a citizen can do with it. So it's a very nebulous territory, and to my knowledge, there's been no precedent set in law in terms of actually trying anyone for doing anything like this. But that said, the, the laws do vary state to state. So before you go out and collect DNA from off the street, you might want to check into it. And of course, again, that's sort of why you did this project in the first place. To, yeah. to bring attention to the fact that there is no legislation or regulation around this. Exactly. I just thought, I mean, I didn't even, I just assumed that there wasn't. Honestly, I didn't really look into it very deeply. And then it turned out that there were actually some some rules in New York that, you know, I probably should have paid attention to. What are but, the rules? Um, the rule in New York is that, the, the law in New York, I should say, is uh, there is a law against surreptitious DNA testing. And so it's sort of a question of whether you define what I did as DNA testing and what that means exactly. What is DNA testing? So the law, um, I imagine, was written to prevent people from, you know, taking someone's cigarette button, figuring out uh, their paternity, for example. But yeah, it's a pretty nebulous, it's a pretty nebulous territory and it's pretty open to interpretation. Well, and of course, that leads me to another one of your projects, uh, Invisible. Mm. Can you talk about a bit about that? Sure, yeah. So coming out of Stranger Visions, I was getting increasingly concerned about genetic surveillance. And so I developed Invisible from the company Biogen Futures as a counter-surveillance product. It's a suite of two different sprays, Erase and Replace. And Erase removes DNA traces while Replace covers them up. This is fascinating to me because uh, I had heard of your previous work, but this this was new. So Replace is a spray consisting of, a, and I'm reading this off the site, of a blend of genes designed to introduce foreign DNA evidence to the surface, therefore masking any of the original DNA remaining in that area. Can you explain that? 
Sure, yeah. So replace is really, I think, the the creative part of the project. This was what I spent my time in the lab really developing. Erase, you can erase your DNA with bleach and water. It's no big deal. But replacing it, covering it up with DNA noise was something that was kind of new. And so what I did was I took DNA from 50 different sources and blend them together along with a DNA preservative, which keeps the DNA fresh, uh, shelf-stable, basically. So you have DNA and uh, very pure water, and then this DNA preservative that keeps it active. Can you explain that foreign DNA? What kind of DNA? Oh, yeah. Well, it's all human DNA. (laughs) It's not like aliens or anything like that. Um, So it's basically DNA from 50 different humans. Uh, One of the easiest ways to cover-up DNA evidence is to mix it with other DNA. So the more complicated a mixture is, the harder it is to parse out what the original DNA source is. So my research, and it's on the website also, you can dig into it a little bit. Um, I was drawing on a few forensic studies that looked at this kind of mixture analysis and looked at um, the effectiveness of spraying DNA over DNA and how easier difficult it would be to parse out the original DNA sample from that. And so I was inspired by those samples and then turned it into this uh, tactical artistic product. Tactical artistic product. That is a brilliant statement. (laughs) So it is understandable that this potentially creeps people right out, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, it's meant to. This this is a great product for anyone concerned about uh, their own genetic information getting into the wrong hands or or any hands just on principle. But of course, the question is, could this be used in a crime to eliminate the evidence, perhaps? Right. Yeah, this is the first question that comes up always. And actually, a lot of uh, what I was researching when I started working on Invisible was this positioning of DNA as a gold standard. And when I realized that it actually wasn't that difficult to hack and forge and spoof DNA from this research that I was doing, I became really concerned that we weren't talking about that. You know, we've had this kind of reexamination of the forensic sciences recently, but DNA is still held up as the one thing that is the golden standard above all others. And so I think we really need to also examine how much authority we place in DNA itself, DNA alone. I don't think DNA alone should be used for a conviction, for example. I think it needs to be shored up with other forms of evidence as well. So how easy is it to spoof DNA then? Well, I mean, just imagine that you uh, mix your saliva sample with a couple of your friends and leave that behind at a crime scene. I mean, it's that easy. Okay, so isn't this at cross-purposes with what the biohacking community is trying to do? They're presenting... I guess all their work as as safe and ethical and positive, and they are making amazing progress in their public relations, which is great. Uh, but then your work pretty much makes everyone feel creepy again. <laughs> well, I think uh, the creepy feelings are important. They're part of the conversation. I mean, I'm a big fan of DIY bio. And I think for me, it's all about getting people involved with the technology and with deeper understandings of the technology. And we can't be scared off by the negative implications. We have to deal with them. We just have to figure out how we're going to deal with them. Exactly. We need to have a cultural conversation about this stuff and figure out what we're comfortable with and what we're not, what needs adjusting. So what is then your opinion on the on the potential uses and misuses of genetic information, if you could sum it up? I mean, I think um, for me, there's a lot of potential to genomic research, and I have no interest in trying to curtail that. 
but I think that we need to be cautious about some of the things that we're doing that might have unexpected uh, consequences. So, for example, thinking about race and genome-wide association studies, that's an area that concerns me greatly. Um, and thinking about privacy, right? So as we start databasing more and more people, exposing their information, biobanking information, what potential information are we putting out there about people that they don't even really re- realize is out there? This is just one of so many areas of cutting-edge science that makes me feel incredibly optimistic and very disturbed at the same time. Mm. Heather, thanks very much for being here. Thank you. We've linked to Heather Dewey-Hagborg and her fascinating work on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. 